This morning, we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7, which is a big swath of Scripture. But I'm not going to read all that right now. I'm going to read uh, mostly from chapter 6 and a little of chapter 5, uh, because we're trying to get the big picture of what God is doing in the book of Esther. And uh, so this morning, I'll be reading from chapter 5, verse 9, through chapter 6, verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. And yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, And they were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court out of the king's palace, to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told the king, Haman is here, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and lead, let them lead him out on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is the word of the Lord. 
I love these stories. Uh, you know, one thing that I did a lot growing up and, and still love today is, is board games. There was one board game I had when I was young that I still remember, and uh, thanks to Mike Denena who filled me in on what the, um, the advertising slogan was. I'd forgot. Um, but the slogan was, roll the dice and move your mice. It was the game of mousetrap. Uh, yes, yeah, some of you remember Mousetrap. It was a game where you're moving your mouse on the board along with the other players, and along the way, together, you're putting pieces together of this elaborate Rube Goldberg-type device that, uh, you know, the ball drops and it flips the lever and the guy jumps into the bathtub and things spin around, and it's this big elaborate machine that in the end, if everything has been set up correctly, drops a trap down and catches a mouse. And the goal of the game is to get your opponent's mouse there and drop the trap. And it's exciting because you've been setting all these pieces in place and it's so complicated and elaborate. And then you finally get all these pieces together and it's your turn to turn the crank and see, is it going to work? Is the trap going to fall and catch the mouse? You know, in this game, more often than not, something didn't work right. You know, something didn't hit the way it was supposed to or wasn't snapped into place just the right way. And then you had to go over and start all over again and fix it. And you didn't get to win that time. But, uh, you know, there was that feeling of excitement. You know, just before you turn the crank and start the whole thing in motion, this excitement of everything's ready. We've been building up to this. Is it going to work? And that's the, the, the moment and the feeling we're at right now in Esther's book. If you've been with us the, the past two weeks, we've talked about God's providence, how God has been putting everything into place. He's been setting all the pieces where they need to be. And now we're going to see, is everything all set right and is it going to work? We've talked about for two weeks now, providence. God's providence. We've defined God's providence as God being in control of all things, directing everything in His creation to do exactly what He plans. So even though God's name is never mentioned in the whole book of Esther, in this whole story, we don't see God referenced or spoken of by name. We clearly see His providence at work. Ordering events, making sure everything comes together the perfect way, that all the pieces are in place like they need to be, that, that, uh, excuse me, that, that Esther is the queen and that she's in the place she needs to be and Haman's where he needs to be and Mordecai is where he needs to be and the king does what he needs to do and everything's all in place to fulfill God's plan of salvation for his people. We saw his providence at work in the background, setting the stage, even bringing his people specifically Esther, out of Jerusalem and to Persia where she would be called upon to join the king's harem and ultimately become the queen. We saw it at work in the choices that people made, the good choices and the bad. And what we see here in chapters 5-7 through is how all that comes together. The pieces are in place. God's providence has brought everything to this point. And unlike the game of mousetrap, God ensures that nothing goes wrong. Every piece is where it needs to be and works exactly the way it needs to work for the victory of God. And so we see in these chapters the victory of God's providence. And through this story of God at work, we learn about God's ultimate victory. What does God's final victory look like? The victory of His providence that brings a greater salvation that God has been preparing for His people including me and you. 
Every time a bell rings. <laughs> Sorry. A quick review of the story so far. Esther, a beautiful young Jewish woman, has been made queen to a pagan king in Persia. Mordecai, her older cousin, has raised her as a father because her parents have died. And he has instructed her not to tell anybody that she is Jewish because it would endanger her. Haman, who hates the whole Jewish race, is a high official under the king, and he has sneakily put into place a plan in the king's name to wipe out all the Jews in the kingdom. And now with disaster on the horizon, Mordecai tells Esther to speak up. He tells her, now is the time to reveal yourself. And what we see in this part of the story about God's victory is that victory is costly. Victory is costly because there's a problem. Esther can't just go into the king and say, hey, a little of your time, please. No, it didn't work like that. We saw that in Esther chapter 4, verse 11. When Mordecai tells Esther to speak up, she explains, look, all the king's servants and the people in the king's provinces, they all know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, without the king summoning them to come in first, there is but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've, I've not been called to come to the, into the king in these 30 days. In other words, if she were to show up in the throne room, she or anybody that were, would do that would be sentenced to death. And the only exception is if the king in that moment felt compelled to hold out his, his scepter and say, you may live. Otherwise, you're dead. But knowing the urgency of the situation, Mordecai says, look, I know the risk, but you have to do it. There, this is what you need to do. And Esther, in chapter 4, verse 16, says, okay, you're, you're right. I will go to the king, although it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's the story so far. That's, that's what leads us up to this. And now in chapter 5, we see what happens when Esther does go in to the king. At the beginning of chapter 5, after praying and after preparing, she goes uninvited into the inner court to see the king and faces a death sentence. In verse 2, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. The king welcomes her, and then she invites the king and Haman to a banquet later on probably thinking that would be a better environment to beg for her life and to explain what's actually happening. Rather than in public, let's go privately, the king, Haman, and Esther, and have a conversation about what's going on. But we need to step back and see what's really happened. We need to look more closely at how Esther points us to what Jesus does in showing us that victory is costly. When she determined to speak up and to go to the king, Esther was identifying herself with a people who are under a curse. There was a death sentence in the kingdom under all of the Jewish people. And Esther, having concealed her identity, may have been able to get away from that. She may have avoided it. But instead, she goes before the king and takes on the identity of a people under curse. In chapter 7, at the banquet, the king says to Esther, what's your wish, Queen Esther? Whatever you want, I'm going to give it to you. 
What's your request? Even, even half my kingdom, it will be fulfilled. And the queen answered, If I've found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Esther has claimed as her identity a people under penalty of death. That's what it costs for the victory. And likewise, in doing so, Esther points us to Jesus. Jesus took on flesh. He became sin for us. We confessed it in our worship this morning, our confession of faith. We confess that, that Jesus, though being in the very nature of God, didn't grasp that and cling to that and stay out of the path of danger, but instead made great sacrifice and took on human flesh and humbled himself to the point of death. Victory was costly. But it's even more costly for Jesus because he didn't need to identify with us. He didn't have to do it. You see, Esther was Jewish. She didn't choose to identify with people under a curse. She revealed that she was under a curse. Jesus, however, chose to take on the curse of sin for us. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're told that for our sake, God made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did not need to take on our punishment. He did not need to take on our curse, but he did. When entering the presence of the king, Esther was giving up her life. It was forfeit. She basically gave to the king the right to decide if she was going to live or die in that moment. And we shouldn't take that lightly because this king had not proven himself to be the most stable of individuals making the most rational of choices. As we saw a few weeks ago, he, he got drunk and cast Queen Vashti out of the kingdom and banished her. So who knows what he's going to do when Esther shows up? Who knows what kind of mood he's in? Her life was forfeit. And yet she did not die but lived. And because she lived, her people lived. They shared her victory. Just as we sang earlier, Jesus lives, so shall I. Death, your sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. In, in dying in our place, in bearing the cost of our salvation, Jesus severs the bonds of death that surround us. And because He lives, we live. That victory, though, was costly. For Esther, it meant setting aside comfort and ease and security and privilege and power. For Jesus, it meant even more. Maybe you've heard the phrase, salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. Salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. Someone had to pay the price. Just ask any parent who's tried to explain to their child why we can't go to Disney World every weekend or why we can't buy every toy that you see advertised or why we can't just travel across the country or around the world just because it would be fun and we would like to do so. You see, for the child, they receive those things freely. They don't have to pay the cost, but someone has to pay. And as they grow older, it becomes a rude awakening when suddenly all these fancy fast food meals or wonderful toys or whatever it is or you know, car insurance or cell phone plans that have so far, you have not paid the cost. Somebody else was always paying the price for what you received free. The victory of God that you and I experience is a costly victory 
Someone had to take your place and go before the king and pay the price, giving up their life that you might live. So what does that mean for us? Now, I imagine you may have heard a sermon on Esther before or read a Bible study or something. And, and I would imagine that in many cases, the application, as we look at Esther going before the king, the application is, be an Esther. Be brave. You go before the difficult things in life and you have that attitude. If I perish, I perish. Be an Esther. Okay, there is a truth to that, but if that's as far as we go, we have missed the beauty and the whole point of what Esther has done. Just like if we are reading the story of David and Goliath, and we take away from that that we need to go boldly against the Goliaths in our life and tackle the giants in faith. There's truth to that as well, but that's not the point of why the Scriptures give us the story of David and Goliath. If you're an Israelite reading the story of David conquering Goliath, you're not thinking, I'm David. At best, you're thinking, I'm like the army of Israel that was cowering in fear, and I have a David who went and fought my battle for me, and I win the victory. Now, if we want to be even more accurate, we'd say, I'm a Philistine who was on the wrong side of the fight. And David won the fight and lets me come and be a part of his people. That's what really happened. So no, the message and the point of the costly victory of God is not go therefore and pay the cost. The point is you have an Esther. You have one who paid the price for you. You have Jesus who forfeited his life on your behalf. And do you know what? Of the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Jews that were in Persia at that time, How many of them needed to go before the king and beg for their life after Esther had already done so? None of them. They didn't need to go before the king and say, oh please, Haman has done this wicked thing. Will you please spare my life? Can I pay you for my life? Can I serve you in some way that I don't have? No, because Esther already did it. The price was already paid. Jesus has already paid the price of your salvation. You don't need to go before God and say, Lord, I'll do anything if you'll forgive me. God, I will work harder. I'll read my Bible every day if you just be pleased with me. No. The price of your salvation has been paid by another. That victory was costly. But praise God, the price was paid. The next thing we see about the victory of God in this story is that the victory of God is timely. Now you have to understand there's Two different meanings of the word timely, at least. One of them means early. You know, done before it needs to be done. Do your homework in a timely way. Get your taxes done in a timely way. That's not what this means. The victory of God is timely in the other sense, meaning it happens right when it needs to. It takes advantage of the good opportunity. It it happens at the specific, right, good, exact, perfect time. You see, Esther isn't the only one who points us to Christ in this story. Mordecai is another figure whose journey and experience shows us what the victory of God is like. Mordecai, if you remember from chapter 2, overheard some, uh, some eunuchs threatening, uh, planning a plot, hatching a plot to kill the king. And instead of just saying, well, he's not my king. You know, he's the king of Persia and he took us captive. I don't care about this guy. I'm just going to let him die. It's not what Mordecai did because he, as, we, as Randy showed us last week in, 
in Jeremiah 29, the Lord had said, look, um, pray for the peace of the city where you're in exile. Actually, bless your captors. And so Mordecai took that seriously and said, I'm going to save the king's life. And he did. And he did the right thing. And what happened? Parades, celebrations, financial reward. No, none of that. Nothing happened for Mordecai except Haman continued to persecute him. Mordecai wasn't rewarded. And God's people can feel that way. That there is no reward for the righteous. We continue to love our enemies. We pray for our persecutors. We speak kindly to those who speak harshly to us. We work and we strive for what God has said is good and true and right. And there is, at times, no reward, no success, no fruit. This is such a normal situation for Christians that Paul even writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Like seriously, it it so doesn't work out for us so often that if this was all we had to go on, it would be foolish. Foolish to follow Jesus. Because if we don't get reward right away, sometimes it's hard to persevere. If going to the gym meant that I immediately saw a change in my body shape for the good, you wouldn't be able to keep people out of the gyms. If, if skipping dessert meant that you would immediately see and feel inches lost off your waistline, like, no thank you, I'm going to skip that cake. Zoop. <laughs> Jupiter Donuts would go out of business, y'all. Like if there was immediate reward for our good choices, it would be easy to do the right thing. But there's not. There's not, and because there is delay, because reward and result and victory are delayed, we struggle to keep up the fight, don't we? Mordecai has done the right thing, the thing that pleased God, and he has seen no no reward, no result. And then just by chance, by stupid, dumb, unbelievable luck, On the night that Haman was going to to have Mordecai hanged, the king couldn't sleep. And just by coincidence, when he asked for something boring to put him to sleep, they came and read to him uh, the chronicles of the past year or so, and just so happened by chance to read the part about Mordecai saving the king's life. And the king says, well, what do we do for this guy? And they said, we haven't done anything for him. And just by chance, the king says, well, who's out in the court? I need some advice on how to reward this guy. And just by chance, happens to be Haman. No, it is the providence of God orchestrating the circumstances at just the right time to make sure that his victory is carried out. All of this points us to a Savior who was humbled for a season. As we confessed earlier from Philippians 2, verses 6-8, through Though Jesus was in the form of God, He didn't take equality with God, a thing to be grasped, emptied Himself, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Westminster Catechism speaks of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. That in being born, in being born in humble circumstances, in living a life of poverty, in being unjustly persecuted, in being tried and found guilty of crimes he didn't commit, and in being executed in a shameful way and buried, Jesus was humbled and humiliated. 
He did the right thing, but like Mordecai, there was no reward. And he endured it because he trusted that after humiliation comes exaltation. As we confessed this morning that in Philippians 2 would go on to say that after all this humiliation, God exalts him. God exalts him. Jesus was humbled, but the victory of God would come at the right time. Now, I want to try to understand like what that means for us. Am I saying that you're going to be exalted eventually in God's economy? Yes. But we don't see that right now. You know, the, the author of Hebrews senses that frustration and he's quoting one of the Psalms that talks about how God has put everything under our feet. Our feet. Because we're made in His image, the pinnacle of His creation. And in Hebrews 2, he says, but you know what? At present, we don't yet see that. We don't yet see everything in subjection to man. But what we do see is this. We see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see that He's now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. So what what the author of Hebrews is saying, and this is important, and this is what's happening with Mordecai. What we want is not, the victory of God is not yet in our grasp. It's not here. We're not experiencing it. We're still in the struggle part of things. But what we can look at and what we do see is that Jesus has already gone through the struggle, has won the victory, and has promised, has guaranteed that we will share in that victory. And that's what we need to look to. So that when the psalmist writes in Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, and wait for the Lord, we're not just waiting hoping things work out, wondering if things work out. No, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we know that when we wait for the Lord, we're not waiting for nothing. We know what we're waiting for. And it's, it's the same with Mordecai. That's, Mordecai's story is, is placed right there because it's beautiful storytelling. Mordecai's honor that he receives while Haman is being shamed. Haman! The one who was about to kill Mordecai has to lead the horse around saying, this is the one that the king wants to honor. He's humiliated. And Mordecai is exalted. And that foreshadows, it gives you a hint of what's about to happen to Haman's whole plan to crush the Jews. Just as he wanted to hang Mordecai, he wants to kill all of God's people. And just as Mordecai is exalted and Haman is is shamed, God's people will be victorious and Haman will be destroyed. That's how we live out the gospel. Just as the Jews could see Mordecai's exaltation and know the tables were turning and be encouraged, we look to Jesus. That's how we live out the gospel. The gospel enables us, gives us the power to live the life that God wants us to live, to continue doing the right things in an absence of reward, in an absence of success. Like Mordecai, you do what's right, you trust God, not because things always go your way when you do what's right. In fact, they tend to go the other way. No, the gospel gives you the power to do what's right because it shows you that you have a Mordecai. You have one who, though persecuted, is now honored and exalted. And just as surely as he's exalted, you too will see the victory of God. Look to Jesus and remember, that the victory of God comes at the right time. It is timely. The last thing we see about the victory of God in this passage is that God's victory is thorough. It's thorough. 
The line at the end of chapter 6, verse uh, uh, 13 is prophetic. Haman tells his wife and his friends everything that happened to him, how he was humiliated in front of Mordecai. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. I want you to remember that phrase. We're going to come back to it. Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall. Please remember that phrase. We're coming back to it. Because what happened? Haman was shamed. And his wife picks up on this and says, that's the beginning. There's going to be more. You're shamed, but that's the beginning of your fall. And the funny thing is, in the very next verse, the eunuchs show up and grab Haman by the arm and hurry him off to Esther's banquet where things go from bad to worse for him. Haman so far, though, has only been humiliated, but it's about to get way, way worse. And that's good news for us as we apply it to God's victory today. In verse 4 of chapter 7, Esther, at, at a banquet with Haman and the king, reveals the plot. She says, King, we've been sold! I and my people have been sold. We've been destroyed to be killed, to be annihilated. And the king is outraged. I mean, this is his queen. And he's like, what? Who did this? Verse 5. You can picture him like red-faced and screaming for accountability. He says to Queen Esther, who is he? Who dared do this? Who's threatening my queen? And then Esther reveals that Haman is guilty. Haman is doomed. He's not just shamed. He's not just banished. He's not just thrown into prison. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7, Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, says, by the way, that guy that saved your life that you just honored, Haman was building a gallows to hang him on it. And the king says, well, put Haman up there. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Beautiful, beautiful explanation of what happens. The very device that Haman wanted to use to destroy Mordecai then turns around and becomes his own destruction. The enemy used the cross to destroy the Son of God and instead was destroyed by the work of Jesus on the cross. Amen? We're making sure you're still listening. This is God's way. His victory is not a halfway victory. It is complete. It is thorough. God does not just rescue us from danger. He destroys the danger. Kids, if you've got your red folders, that's fill in the blank there. God does not just rescue us from danger. God destroys the danger. He doesn't just rescue His people from death so that we can all go find greener pastures somewhere else while things go from bad to worse on earth. That's not the victory of God. That's an escape plan. That's not a victory plan. Okay? No, for God, that would actually be a level of defeat if His good creation was abandoned to destruction. You know those images that you see like in, in cartoons and comics? Uh, you know, I'm thinking like the far side or other things, wherever they would show you hell. What's it like? I mean, there's fire all around. And, and who's there? Who's in charge in hell? Satan, right? Standing there with his pitchfork and flames coming out. Satan's in charge in hell. And so we have this picture in our popular culture that, that God saves you and He takes you away. And while you're, you and I are chilling in heaven, Satan is living it up in hell, running the show, having fun, torturing people. 
That's what Satan's all about. He's the big man down there. And I want you to know that that picture of Satan's destiny is, is complete, unbiblical baloney. Okay, that's the word I'm going to use. Baloney. Satan, the great enemy of God's people, is not given a kingdom. He doesn't win anything in the end. First, he is shamed, just like Haman was. Colossians 2, 13-15. Paul says, You... Believers who used to be dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this, our record of sin, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And when, when Paul speaks of rulers and authorities, he's talking about Satan and spiritual powers. Okay? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Satan and all the powers of evil were shamed by the cross. And remember that phrase I wanted you to remember that Haman's wife said? You have begun to fall. This humiliation you've experienced, it's just the beginning of your greater destruction. And that is the same that is true of God's victory over evil. Satan and his forces were shamed by the cross, and that is the beginning of their destruction. In the end, Satan is himself destroyed. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil, who had deceived the nations, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's how it ends for the accuser, the tempter, the enemy. There is no realm for him to rule. There is no power for him to cling to. He is completely and thoroughly destroyed. And not only that, but everything that he has twisted and marred and ruined in God's creation, everything that the enemy has tried to pollute and distort, look what happens in Revelation 21.5. God, who is seated on the throne, says, Behold, I am making all things new. Not only is Haman himself defeated, but as we're going to see next week, his whole plan is reversed. He's left no legacy. There's nothing left that, that could be construed as a victory on Haman's behalf. And the same is true in God's victory for us. Not only is Satan defeated, but God's victory is so thorough, so comprehensive, that he removes all trace of the enemy's work in his good creation. What the story of Esther shows us, brothers and sisters, is that our battle might not be what we think. God calls us to put on the armor of God. He calls us to fight the good fight, to be a dutiful and faithful soldier in serving Him. But not because the victory is in doubt. We don't fight in order to bring God the victory. If I may describe it this way it's not like we are a great army of the faithful who are marching forward with god attempting to take over this city no it's more like this the king has already gone gone in conquered the city taken it over set up his throne and now he's telling his faithful soldiers don't give up come on in i own the place keep going keep going you're gonna make it i've won already the battle, it's mine. 
What Esther shows us is that through Jesus, the victory of God has already happened. The price of the victory has already been paid. The timing of the victory is sure and certain, and we can look to our Mordecai, to Jesus, who is already exalted, to know that God rewards in time and brings His victory in the right time. And the extent of His victory will be thorough and complete. So no, whatever you are facing and whatever you will face in life, we don't work because we're trying to achieve God's victory. That has already happened. We don't work towards victory as God's people. We work from victory. We don't work towards victory. We work from victory. It's happened. And because of the victory, we have the confidence to go forward. As we're going to sing in just a minute here. High King of Heaven, my victory won. We don't sing, High King of Heaven, my victory is still out there and i got to work hard to get to it. You just try to sing that in a few minutes. It doesn't fit the rhyme or rhythm. Okay? High King of Heaven, my victory won. Already won. May, now I'm trying to just reach heaven's joys because the victory's already won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. And so we live and we labor and we struggle and we strive in that confidence that the victory is won. I've quoted this verse many times. I will quote it many more. Because this is the best thing I can, I can leave you with to understand how we strive and how we struggle in response to this good news. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, not hoping, not guessing, not assuming, just knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not a waste of time. It's not going to turn out to be a nice try but didn't quite make it. Your labor in the Lord means something. It's not in vain. If the victory is won, your work is not in vain. Your faithfulness is not in vain. Your struggle is not in vain. Your hardship is not in vain. In fact, the only reason your labor is not in vain is because God has won the victory. And so loving your neighbor... And so praying for your enemy, giving sacrificially to those in need, rejecting the world's definition and path of happiness or success, all these things are not in vain even though they stink at the time, even though they're hard, even though they don't make sense, even though they don't work out the way we want. They're not in vain because providence of God has won the victory already. He has set all the pieces in place and it's a certain victory. Not going to be a certain victory. It is already the victory of God in Jesus Christ because God in His providence ordered all things according to His plan and there's none that can stop that. None that can overtake that. And so your salvation and your journey is secure in Him. In that hope, let us pray and let us sing. Our gracious Father, You do all things well. Though we are easily distracted and easily distressed when things don't go the way that we would like them to, the way we think they should, You, O oh Lord, have secured our victory. Teach us now to look to Christ, the One who has paid the price of our salvation. 
Teach us to wait patiently and look upon His victory as we await our own in the proper time. And Heavenly Father, teach us to rejoice and find hope in the thoroughness of Your victory. We pray all these things in the name of and according to the will of our God and Savior. Amen.